The Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, and welcome to the Art Newspaper Weekly. My name's Ben Luke. In this, the last podcast of the year, we felt it would be a good idea to look back at 2017 through the big stories in art and heritage. I'm delighted to be joined by Louisa Buck, contemporary art correspondent for the Art Newspaper. Hello, Louisa. Hello, Ben. Gareth Harris, who's our chief contributing editor. Hello. And Annie Shaw, one of our London-based correspondents. Hello. Let's begin by focusing on the biggest museum opening of the year, the Louvre Abu Dhabi. I'm interested in what happens next. So, Gareth, do you think that the opening of Louvre Abu Dhabi kind of gives a new impetus to the, for instance, the Guggenheim Abu Dhabi? I mean, it, it, will this is this a kind of trigger now for, for all these plans that we've been hearing about for a very long time to actually sort of come to fruition? Um, that's a little bit controversial because I think we've reported in the art newspaper that the British Museum has pulled out of the Sheikh Zayed National Museum scheme. I think it, it withdrew from the contract two years early. That I do think that museum will go ahead. I spoke to the chair of the Abu Dhabi Tourism and Cultural Authority and he was adamant that the Sheikh Zayed Museum will be built. The Guggenheim, there is a big question mark. They haven't even broken ground there yet. Again, the chair of the uh, Cultural Authority said that these two museums will be built in 10 years' time. He pledged that. And I, I'm i not so sure about the Guggenheim. I mean, it, it's still very sketchy. I think they're building the collection. But at the moment, yeah, people are, are waiting to see. Now, despite Jean Nouvel's contention that it was old news, the question of workers' rights is still a major issue in the area. Where are we with that? I mean, I think it was pretty symbolic that there was a Swiss uh, media company that was filming in Abu Dhabi and they were detained because it was felt that they were going into it, straying into areas that weren't correct. So this idea that... that um, that Abu Dhabi is welcoming to everyone and that you you know that this is a very open forum is is misleading isn't it with, with the workers rights issue is not has not gone away it is not old news no i think we we reported online it was two swiss journalists wasn't it they were detained i think they they were quoted saying that they wanted to show the uh, flip side to the glitz i think their equipment was seized as far as i'm aware they were forced to sign some sort of confession in arabic as far as i'm aware right um, so, yeah, it was very telling, you know. I mean, there were hordes of journalists there for the opening, but obviously if you try to venture outside and show a bit of local reality, <laughs> you were you got into a little bit of trouble. Um, it, it is difficult. I know that the sort of decade-long project has been repeatedly criticised by human rights groups, such as um, Human Rights Watch, I believe. Is the yeah, that's right. And they issued a, they've done reports and things, haven't they, on this issue? Yeah, and they're still not very happy, I don't think. I mean... Speaking for the Abu Dhabi Tourism uh, Culture and, uh, and Tourism Authority, they have worked with PricewaterhouseCoopers in the last few years. I think PricewaterhouseCoopers have issued four annual reports based on the working conditions. Um, and I think they, they sort of document the, the efforts to address abusive labour practices. I think, for example, they, they've set up a permanently manned hotline for workers to report problems. But some of these human rights organisations are still saying there are labour abuses or there were labour abuses on the site. Um, I contacted uh, Abu Dhabi Tourism Authority yesterday and they tell me that the latest report detailing uh, the sort of workers' conditions and rights is due out in the next few weeks. 
So we'll have to wait, I think, until January to see what the latest is on that. But it does it does rumble on, and I think the row with the Swiss trainer shows that that issue just won't go away. I was just curious about the relationship between the work on Move Abu Dhabi and the Gulf Labour movement, which is a, which is a group of artists, in, mainly in New York, who combined, some of them really quite high profile, to protest against workers' rights right across the Gulf with these very high profile. Yes, the Guggenheim hasn't broken ground yet, but it's been very much touted around as another another symbol of these kind of coming cultural comings together. And I'm curious to know where we're at with Gulf Labour at the moment and where they're at with the conditions on the ground. I think, uh, as, as far as I'm aware, I think Gulf Labour said earlier this year, around October time, that it's renewed its boycott of cultural institutions on Sadiat Island, including the still unbuilt Guggenheim Abu Dhabi and the Zayed National Museum. So they, they really hit back at Jean Nouvel. They said, imagining that one can clearly compartmentalise the world of high culture from the conditions in which its institutions are realised is the real old question because he sort of said something that, that it was an old question, the rights linked to the workers. But I'm not sure what the latest is. I'm not sure how they're going to address the next few museums. I mean, I think it's really important. You know, it, it's it's hugely important for Abu Dhabi, for Sadaya Island, that artists are behind it, because especially if, we're, if there is going to be a Guggenheim, but just generally, if, you know, cultural institutions need living artists to really support them, right? <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think I was also surprised by the lack of works by Middle Eastern artists at the museum. I mean, Holes has got the work, which is fantastic. It looks incredible under the dome. There's a, two or three pieces by Giuseppe Pennoni, but I thought there was a bit of a dearth of Middle Eastern contemporary art. Perhaps that will be addressed in the future as well. So how we get around that issue and the ongoing human rights question will be something they will need to sort out. Uh, Now, I wanted to move on to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which has had a chequered year, to say the least. Um, Thomas Campbell, the director, resigned in February, and this was amid the fallout of an $8 million operating deficit for the museum in the 2016 financial year, and following expanded digital presence and the opening of the Met Breuer in 2015... and this is despite the fact that the Met has a $2.5 billion endowment. Among the most illuminating pieces that we ran about this was actually just before Tom Campbell resigned, we had an interview with George Goldner, who had actually run the museum's prints and drawings department for more than 20 years. And I thought that was a really tremendously illuminating piece because it really got to what the people at the museum were thinking about the changes under Tom Campbell. Gareth, do you have any thoughts on this? Um, yeah, I thought Golner's interview was fascinating. I think one of the questions we asked him was, how has the museum changed in recent years? And he, he did actually defend Tom Campbell. He said Campbell's pursued three distinct agendas, that he's promoting scholarship. One of the most significant things he said is that one of the areas Campbell did champion was this dramatic thrust, Golner's words, not mine, into contemporary art. And I do think that's fascinating. There was a, a job advert posted in September... Uh, for the new director. I think Daniel Weiss is now stepping in. He's the museum's president and chief executive. He's the interim kind of leader. Um, and, and, and the job description says that the, the new director will need to help shape and support the Met's commitment to modern contemporary art, including plans for the Southwest Wing, which is this 600 million extension. Yeah. So they are moving ahead with that. They opened the Met Breuer, I think, two years ago. I think they have an eight year lease on that building. But I do find it fascinating that they still want to move ahead quite forcefully into the contemporary art field so the new director will have to really think about that quite carefully yeah I mean one of the intriguing things reading 
Tom Campbell's interview since he uh, left the Met and also just a, a, a lot of the criticisms that were levelled at him is that it seems to, to me that he was just doing what he was asked to do, which was to modernise the institution. And so these big and clearly expensive digital reforms, plus this big um, commitment to modern and contemporary art, seem to me to be what the trustees have asked him to do. Uh, and this brings up this other problem, which is that, that Goldner identified, which is that many of the trustees of the museum are in fact collectors of contemporary art as opposed to historically some of the collectors who would have collected more historical items in the past so I'm wondering actually if the biggest problem was not Tom Campbell but a kind of an issue of governance in terms of the trust if the trustees are skewed in one particular way which doesn't feel very met then how on earth can the Met continue to be a constructive force in the way that it was I mean I just wanted to jump in here probably rather simplistically because I'm not immersed in this whole issue but it seems to me modernising and moving with the times doesn't necessarily mean investing heavily in contemporary art. I think digitalisation, yes but I think to have a 600 million investment in a new contemporary wing when you've got the Museum of Modern Art, you've got the Guggenheim you've got the Whitney, I mean the Met has fantastic holdings, I'm not saying it should stay in some kind of time warp, but one thinks the British Museum yes they do do projects with contemporary artists but the contemporary artists interface with the existing collections and it's very much with, with in relation to consolidating and working with what you got and I think an interesting thing from that interview was the fact that northern um, European drawings curator has been laid off but they've invested millions of dollars in northern European drawings and now there's no one to curate them so I think to think a bit more in terms of kind of housekeeping and consolidating what you've got rather than expanding into contemporary in such it seems to me a very expensive way does seem odd and I think you're right it's skewed by the makeup of the of the board of trustees themselves. But it's a fascinating moment for the Met, really. It's all about its very DNA, isn't it? I think George Goldner says more contemporary collectors have joined the board in the past eight or ten years. And he compares it to MoMA, Museum of Modern Art. Um, and he said, you know, it's uh, the Met is a far more nuanced and complex institution. So how it moves forward now with this contemporary art question is, is just going to be crucial. It's funny because... I think when I was studying art history and looking across the pond, I sort of always looked with the with kind of starstruck eyes at the Met as this sort of exemplar of one of the great, you know, this great museum. And it seemed to me that for any art historian, particularly those immersed in in the art history of before the modern period, it seemed to me it would like the the it would be the pinnacle of their career to to lead the Met. I'm wondering now, is is it as great a job as? it would have been all those years ago. Is it? Is it something of a poison chalice, do you think? It just seems so unfeasible. I mean, the role involves overseeing 31 departments. I think that was what the job advert said, including 17 curatorial offices. And again, I assume this emphasis on digital media. So it's that, that crossroads between, I think Tom Campbell built up the digital media department, but how the new director takes that forward will be another issue. I think a lot of the issues came from how he... I don't know, built up the digital division. And managing all those endowment funds. I mean, there's not just the one, there's others as well. So they've got to be kind of a business whiz, a finance whiz, a curatorial whiz, a managerial whiz, and be able to, you know, be, be, be lofty with the great and good. I mean, it's a huge ask, I think. But on the other hand, a fantastically exciting moment, as Gareth says, 
at this transitional period for the Met as to really deciding which direction it does take in the future. And it is, as you say, Ben, one of the world's, you know, the great museum. So it's not lost all its luster in this recent episode, I don't think. So now we're going to turn our attentions to the market and we will come to the Leonardo in a minute. We can't ignore it, but we've done a lot on it on this podcast, but I think there's still stuff to say. Um, but actually, first, I wanted to start with something which I think is quite a worrying trend in the art market. Annie, um, there have been a lot of mid-tier galleries, galleries that we, four of us in this room, will have visited a great deal with really great artists who've actually done some really impressive stuff in the past and have now closed. It seems to me that this is a very worrying development. Yeah, I mean, there have been some obvious headline sales this year, with the 450 million Leonardo, the 110 million Basquiat, but there's been a very different story unfolding in the middle and low echelons of the art market, which is, as you say, Ben, there have been a number of um, closures in, in London and in New York. Um, in London, Limoncello and Vilma Gold shut their doors, although apparently the latter is still working with, with the gallery's artists. Um, Ibid and the old master dealer Johnny Van Heften shut up shop um, well they've relocated um, Ibid's sort of organising Ibid's founder um, is organising sculpture shows off site um, in sort of corporate headquarters and, and using other buildings so he's sort of finding a different way there and, and Johnny Van Heften is dealing privately out of his home um, but I think yeah really the spiralling rents and a desire by um, the desire for these trophy works like like Leonardo, like the Basquiat, um, and an exhausting cycle of art fairs means that those dealers in the middle are really, really um, taking a hit. I was struck by Rachel from uh, Vilma Gold's message when she closed the gallery saying it was almost like a sort of a disillusionment with the way the art world had gone that you know that no that the the gallery shows which actually i think are still really important part of their program were actually somehow much less seen as being much less significant by the collecting fraternity so collectors are ignoring these shows and really it's probably us journalists critics members of the public students that were probably seeing them much more than the people that were actually the people that were going to keep them afloat by buying actual works of art and that seems again you know a a trend which i'm not which 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 is troubling because actually these shows are tremendously important for artists and i think one of the things rachel cited in that email was this exhausting cycle of art fairs which has become sort of bread and butter for most dealers they do a lot of more than sort of around 50 between 40 and 60% of their sales at art fairs so then they're, they're a necessary evil but they're also hugely expensive to put on to to ship works to to put up you know fly your staff over to put them up in hotels um and but it's interesting out of this sort of very difficult time a lot of dealers are finding alternative ways of surviving they're adapting to survive and one of them is that they're shutting their permanent spaces but they're on the art fair circuit so they're actually using art fairs as a platform to exhibit and obviously sell um which is kind of a strange position to be in really but on the other hand for the big art fairs you have to have a gallery program to be eligible for them so you're kind of stuck at a certain level if you're only going to work the art fairs and of course the reason for the galleries to have programs none of them really have passing trade off the street anymore but what they do have is a space where their artists can show and if they want to keep their artists sweet they have to have regular programmes where the artists can show their latest body of work and their peers can look at their work and indeed you know people who aren't necessarily the buying public but students other interested people within within the sphere can go and actually look at a properly installed show of work rather than an art fair booth. I think that's right I mean we at the art newspaper have all reported on 
um, uh, examples of artists who are quite happy to show art fairs and enjoy showing their works. They will use the the clever way that artists do. Will use the experience sometimes to critique or or slightly subvert the art fair. But at the same time, there's nothing like a proper gallery show to be able to properly properly develop a body of work and show it. Uh, in, in in the best kind of conditions. None of us like looking at art in art fairs, do we? And artists don't like art fairs, really, at all. I mean, only very few of them actually work the art fair on a kind of project basis. They're a tiny minority. What's also interesting is this sort of new models cropping up. I think what dealers say is that people are quite la- lazy, quite frankly, and if they can't see it all under one roof, you know, it's a bit of a mission to, especially in London, where there's no sort of traditional gallery hub as there used to be, and these models are cropping up like condo, like the the development at Cromwell Place, where they're sort of you know they're they're not they're not art fairs, but they they sort of present a, a experience a platform where you can see a number of exhibitions in one in a short space of time or under one roof. But what's the long term prognosis then? I just wondered what happens next. Really, I mean, art fairs are still booming. Does that does this mean the middle market or those lower rank galleries just get priced out completely eventually? $64,000 question. <laughs> what seems to be happening in the art world seems to be reflecting what's happening in our major cities and certainly in London, whereby you've got the very kind of lower end of the market and the very high end of the market still there. We've still got some public housing in London and more and more highly expensive and often empty properties, but nothing in the middle. And that seems to be the same thing with the art world, that, you know, that this middle sector is being depleted and it's reflecting you know, broader social trends of, of polarisation. Indeed. I mean, in, in, in answer to your question, Gareth, I wonder if condo, which Annie mentioned, is something like a kind of response in the sense that this is a this is about a community of galleries, galleries saying we're going to support each other to explain basically uh, galleries in London and New York and I think in Mexico City maybe I might be wrong with that but um look it up online everyone the um the uh condo consists of basically galleries inviting other galleries from throughout the world into their spaces and putting on shows by their artists and I think that's a way that that is a way of saying showing solidarity and dealing with this quite difficult issue in a kind of uh community way and provide an alternative to the art fair too. So it means that you can actually reach new audiences, reach new new markets, but without having to pay a fortune for an art fair booth. It's a collegiate act amongst the um, commercial gallery sector, which is more and more prevalent now and quite unusual because there used to be a hot competition in the past. And now there seems to be much more of a kind of relationship-based um, activity going on. I think it's clever because it taps into that event culture. If we if we are saying we are an event culture and we're and we're permanently on this on this hamster wheel of events and and extravaganzas and festivals, then it's a smart way of addressing that whilst also preserving the sort of traditional gallery show model. I think we just have to remember that there are many art markets, you know, and they overlap and they interchange. But, you know, fundamentally, artists make art the good ones because they have to, because it's an, it's an impulse. And they will find ways to make art and show art. And good gallerists, who often were originally artists themselves, will find ways to show it. So I think the art market ain't dead in that respect. But it's got to get a lot more versatile and nimble. And that's tough. So let's talk about that tiny 1% end of the market, then let's talk about the Leonardo. We've addressed the, the cost, the condition of the work and other, and, and other things in other, in other podcasts. But Gareth, you wanted to talk a bit about the importance for the region, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that we've had this uh, conundrum about who actually bought the piece. So it started, I think, with the Saudi prince as a proxy, then it went to another member, the royal 
family in Saudi. And now Louv Abu Dhabi issued a press release, I think, last week saying they'd actually acquired the work. A lot of this has to be sort of sorted and confirmed, I suppose, but not really at the bottom of the mystery yet. But as I said earlier, I think it probably is a cultural flashpoint for the region. Um, Saudi, I think Louisa pointed this out, Saudi is now lined up with the UAE in a sort of cultural political alliance, especially in the kind of ongoing conflict in Yemen, um, which is backed by US, the US and the UK as well, which is another issue. Yeah. <laughs> so I do think that they, they've used this painting as a sort of, uh, it has become almost a political symbol, really. I think we can go so far as to say that. Something tells me that we're going to be talking about that there painting for some time to come. Now, it's time to turn to heritage. Just this week, two Confederate statues were removed from parks in Memphis, indeed on Wednesday evening. And this is a story which has dominated the year in terms of heritage. Of course, the the biggest flashpoint was on the 12th of August, when the planned removal of a statue of Robert Lee, the Confederate general, uh, prompted a rally by white nationalists and neo-Nazis. They were met by counter-protesters and this resulted in the death of a civil rights activist. Her name was Heather Heyer and she was 32, who was killed as a car ploughed into the crowds. Remarkably, the President of the United States, President Trump, Uh, repeatedly spoke of equivalent violence on both sides and stated that there were very fine people among the white nationalists and neo-Nazis who were were chanting appalling slogans and parading anti-Semitic placards, etc, etc. And of course the reason that we're talking about it is that Trump made a very personal contribution to the statues debate uh, in a series of tweets which I'm going to read out from August the 17th. He said, Sad to see the history... I won't do an impression... Uh, He said it was sad to see the history and culture of our great country being ripped apart with the removal of our beautiful statues and monuments. You can't change history, but you can learn from it. Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, who's next? Washington? Jefferson? So foolish! The beauty that is being taken out of our cities, towns and parks will be greatly missed and never able to be comparably replaced. Now, of course, this has been played out a great deal on the op-ed pages of uh, of our newspapers. To set it in context, Eric Foner, the pr- a professor of history at Columbia University, said the great waves of Confederate monument building took place in the 1890s as the Confederacy was coming to be idealised as the so-called lost cause. And then the Jim Crow system was being fastened upon the South. And in the 1920s, the height of black disenfranchisement, segregation and lynching. But then on the other hand, you have somebody like Michelle Bogart from Stony Brook University who wrote a very thoughtful piece in the New York Daily News which argued that you don't have to be pro-Trump or pro-Confederacy to be concerned about the idea that there's mass uh, destruction and um, a mass taking down of these monuments because they actually have a historical import. So this is an incredibly vexing issue uh it was probably the most alarming moment of the entire trump presidency to date i think this active support for uh white nationalists what do we think about the whole confederate statues issue oh it's so complicated and difficult and sitting here as a white middle class english woman i feel very vexed about discussing it but I do feel also passionately 
when I hear about things being removed, iconoclasm, removal, whole scale of, of, of cultural artefacts, sculptures, paintings, whatever they may be, my heart does miss a beat. By God, I'm not a Trump supporter. By God, I don't agree with him. But I do feel, and I'm in the Michelle Bogart camp here, really, that these things have to be very carefully considered. Things... I think I, it sounds like a politician saying everything should be reviewed on a case-by-case basis, but I do feel that there has to be very careful discussion. If statues are removed, then there has to be documentation, learning, discussion around that. They should be then supplanted by other statues. There should be... Definitely we should know why things have been taken away, where they've been taken away. They should be judged on all different kinds of criteria too. I think it's absolutely fair point that these are not contemporaneous with, with the Confederate era. They're, they're sort of nostalgic and often very repressive symbols of eras when 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 the Jim Crow laws were put in place, the Ku Klux Klan were thriving, or indeed later on when new legislation was put, put in place to kind of keep black populations so-called in their place. So they're very complex, these sculptures, and I think one needs to really think very carefully about just taking them all away and I, I think that's that's how I feel but I mean it's it's so vexed and so complicated and I think you know we need to learn and talk and discuss. It is polarising Americans though I think the day after the Charlottesville rally um, North Carolina's Governor Ray Cooper issued a statement that the call for the removal of Confederate monuments he said we cannot continue to glorify a war against the United States of America fought in the defence of slavery these monuments should come down People are putting their cards on the table. Um, I think, Louisa, you're quite right that, that 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 there's not a real plan for what happens next in terms of these. You know, wh- where you how you how you educate about what these symbols were. I mean, I think apart from anything else, we it's, it's very difficult to go into it even even in this forum in the sense that a very great many of these these monuments, what Trump got very wrong amongst all the other things he got very wrong was that these are beautiful things a very great many of them are without any artistic merit they were mass produced they're produced in cheap materials and just sort of thrown up in various places throughout the south so that's the one point but there are also others that even very anti-Trump commentators like Michelle Bogart and and like Harold Holzer for instance another specialist who's an Abraham Lincoln specialist have said you know they do have artistic merit we should think carefully before taking them down so i think what what we're struck by in this in this conversation is just how vexing an issue is but also how complicated it is to take the next steps even when these things are taken down I mean, the notion of the public realm anywhere is so complicated. There are so many stories, histories, forgotten histories, overemphasized histories swirling around. And I think that's what needs to be addressed. I don't know how. And I think, again, it varies from location to location. But I think there should be more interventions encouraged. Things should actually be added rather than taken away. And if, if necessary, taken away, but taken away in a considered way in a way that actually has been discussed and that everybody learns more from the process, but get more artists from different cultural backgrounds who've been forgotten and overlooked to intervene and make more public monuments and interface with the ones that exist already would be my off-the-head thought. I mean, I, I just can't help but think we slightly missed the point when we talk about monuments. I, I think, speaking to Josh Klein um, this autumn, he had a show at um, Modern Art during Freeze and it was called Civil War. And upstairs he had a new video which part of it showed sort of a racially diverse group of people picnicking and burning and burying the confederate flag and, and what he said to me and which is absolutely true is that this is a symbol of 
racism, and this is slightly different to the Confederate statues, but they are symbols of racism and white supremacy. And ultimately, I think there is no place for them in 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 modern America, in, in contemporary America. I, I genuinely feel very strongly that, yes, perhaps there should be ways of, of, of telling that story, but this, this let's not you know forget what they are symbols of and i think and and that then and what's happening in america today is not so different as what was happening during the civil rights era and also you know and, and 100 years ago i think these things are playing out with trump people are being um you know persecuted for their color and these these issues are very live and and they're very painful symbols to people today well, to put it bluntly, there are no swastikas on display legally in Germany, are there? So I think, you know, there is a sense of having to discriminate and be very careful about what you do allow to remain and what you do take away. And now the, the Whitney Biennial was engulfed in a, a sort of scandal earlier on in the year because there was a painting by Dana Schutz, which was of the badly beaten body of the 14-year-old African-American boy Emmett Till, in his open casket, made from a photograph. And this prompted uh, an open letter from a British artist, Hannah Black. And I'm just going to read a little bit of that uh, that, that letter from Hannah Black. It was also signed by 25 other people, um, artists and writers of colour. And uh, she said, The painting should not be acceptable to anyone who cares or pretends to care about black people, because it is not acceptable for a white person to transmute black suffering into profit and fun, though the practice has been normalised for a long time. She added that the painting should be destroyed and not entered into any market or museum. Um, Dana Schutz responded by saying that she empathised with Emmett Till's mother and as a mother she could empath- she could empathise with the situation even though she didn't know what it was like to be an African-American. Um, and then later on there, were, there was an attempt to have Schutz's exhibition at the ICA Boston taken down, again by a group of artists. And then in response to that, 80 artists from the National Academy of Art, including Marina Abramovich, Edward Shea, Cindy Sherman and Cara Walker, wrote their own letter letter of support for Schutz which basically said that they wholeheartedly supported the ICA Boston's right to uh, show the work of Dana Schutz and it was the it was of the utmost importance to us that artists not perpetrate upon each other the same kind of intolerance and tyranny that we criticize in others. Louisa what do you make of all this? It's hugely problematic on the one hand I don't know why Dana Schutz reproduced that image of the badly beaten Emmett Till it was from a photograph that was widely dispersed, um, dispersed at the time in, in the public media. Emmett Till's mother wanted that picture to be seen. It became a focal point and a rallying point in the civil rights movement. But I don't really understand her motivation for painting it and indeed displaying it in the Whitney Biennial. It's hugely problematic. So you mean uh, you feel that maybe the curators could have advised her better? Well... Yes. I mean, I would stand up and defend any artist's right to paint or portray whatever they choose. I don't think that you have to be of a certain colour or cultural background to portray certain material, but I think you've got to be damn careful if you're going to disseminate it and put it out there in the public realm. I think it's a, it's a very complicated issue, and I feel that destroying, calling for the destruction of artworks, again, makes my heart sink. I find that very problematic. Having artists calling for other artists' artwork to be destroyed makes me very unhappy. People standing in front of artworks in public places so people can't view them makes me very anxious too. 
But I do feel that, you know, one has to be very sensitive with certain material. And I think that you know, people feel very passionately about that kind of material being used. And rightly so. Rightly were people aggrieved that, that Dana Schutz painted that work and that it was on show in the Whitney. But I, I feel very conflicted about the whole issue. And then, and then the idea for, that the ICA was, was riding on the coattails of Schutz's, no, the notoriety surrounding Schutz. Um, but I think, in fact, that exhibition had been sort of two years in the making, so obviously preceded this whole saga. But I think, again, it's a very dangerous territory when you, you start to call for a whole survey of an artist's work to be pulled. And I think the other point to make is from a market perspective, from a, from a financial perspective, I think there were also objections that she could potentially financially benefit from that work. And I think I think the, the work was, was actually first shown in Berlin with, without comment, it passed without comment which is interesting that it wasn't until it came to the Whitney that it was, it sparked such protest. But I think Schutz did sell all of the works in that Berlin show, but she kept two paintings, um, one of them being open casket. Um, so she has, she's, she's, you know, said that she, she specifically hasn't financially benefited, although, you know, the long-term implications, obviously, for the market is, is hard to, to tell. So now I'd like to turn to the Grand Tour. We had this once every 10 years occurrence where... Uh, the Venice Biennale, uh, the five-yearly exhibition Documenta happened, and uh, the sculpture project Munster, which happens at, which happens every ten years. So w- once every ten years, these all collide at once, and there's this mass uh, migration to the centre of Europe to look at these shows. Louisa, you went. What did you make of them? It's so enormous. There's so much to take in. Um, I'll kick off first of all with. Venice, which was the first one that that I visited. And that in itself is the director's exhibition of 120 or so artists. There are 90 national pavilions. There are goodness knows however many other satellite exhibitions. Um, So I'll start with the director's exhibition because that's the sort of overarching. Christine Marcel had this theme. They always have loose baggy themes, which really have a sort of... A fairly wide application. On the other hand, some directors just hit it. Okwe Emwazor had his, which was very much a, a challenge to capitalism, um, which, which which was very effective. Christine Marcel calls hers "Vive Art, Viva Arte, Viva." I mean, what does that mean? Live art, life, life art lives. It was very much about art. She felt not about the world but how could you ignore the world in this particular climate yes the show had been two years in the making and before trump and before brexit but there was a refugee crisis there were these huge seismic shifts taking place and so to have sort of um nine sub pavilions devoted to um the senses shamans traditions color struck me as very woolly and very baggy having said that one does pick out some key works and there was some great great pieces in there i mean the a great showing of women artists for example i think came came through very very strongly um you you had ending with a with a sort of fantastic fandango of sheila hicks's enormous woolen pieces there were some great discoveries for me actually um azilia sanchez this wonderful kind of rather sexy minimal work uh, she's a cuban a mature cuban artist also um Huguette calon from lebanon making these very provocative very erotic drawings these are these are artists at the end of their careers you know they're in their 70s or 80s so there were some great discoveries there but I felt that very much Sheila um, I felt very much Christine Marcel's show was baggy and problematic too there were certain um, elements I had Olafar Larsson for example um, who's running an enormous workshop with 
refugees making lamps and the visitors could sit down and chat to the refugees while they were working in these workshops. It just really reeked of kind of colonialism and, and, and grand tourishness. Um, Ernesto Neto had actually got an Amazonian tribe um, in, in one of his structures which, which reproduced one of their kind of meeting places. And on the opening day, visitors could chat to some of these slightly bemused people who'd been shipped in from the Amazon. So, you know, it was problematic. I thought it was kind of out of date um, conceptually, but in terms of some individual works, great. And then, of course, we come on to the pavilions, but maybe Gareth would like to speak a word or two about what he felt about Christine's show before we go into the pavilion aspect. Uh, yeah, I, I thought um, Christine Marcel's presentation was rather flat, really. Um, so I can see what she was trying to do. I suppose she was trying to challenge gender stereotypes about textile production, that kind of thing, but for me it just didn't work. It needed to be a lot more relevant. But as, as Louisa said, there were some real revelations. There was a there were works by an artist called Judith Scott. She, she's a, a late artist. She was born with Down syndrome. And they presented her, her works, which were these sort of totemic, abstract, found objects, intricately bound in threads, that kind of thing. And, and they were just fantastic. And the Sheila Hicks was amazing. What were the highlights among the pavilions, Louisa? Well, I think this is it. You see, then you've got the whole series of, of pavilions, which, which bring in a whole different aspect. Um, I mean... I'm not alone in thinking the German pavilion with Anne Imhoff was, for me, one of the real high points. I mean, she had transformed the pavilion and made it into this very disquieting space. The floor was glass. Um, there were Doberman dogs roving outside. Underneath the glass floor, there were kind of Generation X, sort of very, very androgynous um, young people wandering around, performing kind of elaborate gestures, sometimes gazing at you. Sometimes they climbed the walls. There was music being played at certain points. You just felt surveyed, but also they were surveying themselves. It was a very kind of unsettling, very interesting environment. Mark Bradford in America also, I thought, he sort of trashed the outside of the American pavilion. You know, it's usually so hubristic and all spruced up. It had kind of bits of rubbish and stuff lying around, but not in a very conspicuous way, just like nobody bothered to clean it up. Then you entered through a side entrance into this extraordinary, overwhelming painting. So you were kind of crawling up the side of this vast abstract painting that was hanging in your wake. Philida Barlow, our British Philida, also transformed the pavilion with a very subversive set of sculptures that you absolutely had to negotiate with your body. She also made jokes about the sort of bombast of the National Pavilion with these works that came out, spilled out, occupied the, occupied the outside, hung like great baubles or sort of fungi in the front. So you had, you had that going on, which I liked a lot. One of my real revelations was actually out of the Giardini and it was in the um, next door to the Bridge of Sires in the former prison building and it was the veteran Taiwanese um, Tai Ching Sei um, artist who did these extraordinary pieces. I mean, back several decades ago, but, for example, a whole year living in Manhattan without any shelter, literally just with a sleeping bag, never did he go inside a, inside a, a building at all. And he documented this meticulously day by day by day where he defecated, where he ate, where he slept. Um, another piece where he punched in every single hour for a year um, with, with, a, with a factory puncture and took, took a photograph of his face. So, of course, his hair and beard grew. Again, commenting on the kind of relentlessness of capitalism, the way in which, you know, we are mechanised in our existence. I mean, astonishing feats of endurance way before Marina Abramovich. And that was a real revelation and being mounted in this kind of very oppressive 
prison-like structures. So those were some of my top pavilions. It's a smorgasbord there. The one last quick mention is the Diaspora Pavilion of British artists, um, artists who would have been normally marginalised, artists of colour, different generations, so younger artists are being mentored by older ones, the most notable of which was Khadija Sai, who died in the Grand Tower fire, but her photographs were absolutely stunning, these tintype photographs, and it gave you a tragic in- indication of where her future would have lain. Gareth, you were on the Grand Tour as well. What did you make of the shows? Um, I visited Munster in northwest Germany for the fifth edition of Sculpture Projects Munster, which is basically when a whole raft of sculptures pop up in the squares, courtyards and and gardens of of the city of Munster. And that was, for me, much more satisfying than Documenta, which I can can mention later. There were some fantastic works. Um, Jeremy Della's anthropological project called Speak to the Earth and It Will Tell You. He asked local allotment owners to to keep 10-year nature diaries. And and they, they can be read in a summer house in the gardens there. And I, I think sort of the you know the peculiarities of local horticult- horticultural clubs have never been so riveting. To be honest, I was, <laughs> I was gripped. Um, and there's an ama- there was an amazing piece by Gregor Schneider called N. Schmidt. He it was a kind of trademark piece, but he he constructed a series of deserted rooms which were designed to disorient viewers, and it was terrifying. That was fantastic. I think Louisa will agree that Pierre Weeks. Um, pockmarked apocalyptic landscape called After a Life Ahead was a real highlight. That was in a disused ice rink. Yeah, it sort of crashed like a meteorite in a defunct ice rink and there were peacocks and live animals and, and incubated cancer cells and it was a real standout piece. Mm. I did enjoy Documenta. It was very intellectual, very cerebral. Um, there were some standout pieces like Martha Minugin's central work in the main square in which she had bound... This was in Castle. In, in Castle, in, in that's Germany, right, yeah. yeah. She'd bound together a 100,000 censored books into... She'd sort of constructed a, a model of, of the Greek Parthenon and the books were sort of visible in the transparent columns. That was a highlight. Um, but the, uh, the other artist who really was a knockout for me was the Polish artist Alina Szczaznibokov, I think it's pronounced... Um, a series of her works were on show. I really wasn't aware of her work previously. She died in 1973. She was diagnosed with breast cancer in 1969 and made a sort of a series of tumour-like sculptures, which are quite horrifying and quite incredible at the same time. And that led me to discover her show at Hepworth Wakefield, which opened earlier this year. I think it ends January the 28th. So if you have time, please go and see it. It's a retrospective of her works. Um, it includes a lot of those sculptural wall reliefs that I saw in Documenta, not the same ones, but along the similar lines. And it shows how the breast cancer diagnosis transformed her outlook and practice. It is the most incredible work. She was way ahead of her time, the way she embedded photographs in, in these sculptural reliefs within gauze. And it's horrifying, but says a lot about our present condition. Now, I wanted to ask all of you what your exhibition of the year was. Um, Louisa, can we begin with you? Jenny Holzer in Blenheim Palace. I mean, no mean feat to take on the Van Bra Baroque masterpiece, the only non-Episcopal palace in the UK. Churchill was born there, the Dukes of Marlborough. I mean, you know, you've got British heritage in spades. But of course, what she singled out and what we all forget is it's a spoil of war. 
It was given to the first Duke of Marlborough for winning the Battle of Blenheim in 1704, and she reinfects it with this notion of it being a spoil of war. And there are the most extraordinary interventions throughout Blenheim. I mean, the first thing when you walk into the main in the main hall, there's this hanging pole, this this, this stick which is an LED sign, upon which pause these testimonies of, of British soldiers of their war experience. So it's hanging like some... You have a horrible Abu Ghraib moment as well with this sort of hanging image, like a sort of morbid chandelier, behind which there's a great ceremonial table where there was some big fancy um, table ornament, which was the first Duke getting his sort of signing off the defeat dispatches. That's been taken away. And the entire tabletop is full of... covered with neatly stacked human bones, beautifully ordered. And throughout, there are these interventions some spectacular like that. There's the bust of the first duke, which has sort of LED signs emanating out like a fountain with contemporary accounts. So what, of course, the point she's making is that, yes, the historical circumstances might change. Yes, you know, the weaponry might alter. War is appalling war. And today's today's soldiers are as, suffer the same horrors as, as, as those in the, in the Duke's day. And throughout Blenheim, she's, she has works. There are a lot of her redacted works of... of, of um, decommissioned US military documents dating from the Gulf War from Af- from Afghanistan but redacted so they almost look like Rothko's or constructivist works with with the text blanked out they're propped against the wall in these state chambers above great swagger portraits of duchesses and dukes and all their frills and furbelows and there are these blank mute blocked out documents or subtly within a kind of a, a, a cabinet of the finest porcelain she'll just slip a human shoulder blade so you've got the bone of a shoulder blade. So you've got these subtle interjections. Now, Gareth, you, you've mentioned the Hepworth show, which moved you so much. What, what, what else did you enjoy this year? Um, I just want to mention a retrospective of Hassan Sharif's work, which is still on at the Sharjah Art Foundation in the UAE. It's on until the 3rd of February. Um, he died last year, but this show completely reassesses his legacy. He, he was dubbed the godfather of conceptual art in the Gulf, and it's amazing to see what he actually did. He was such a trailblazer. He came to art school in London in the 1980s. He then returned to the UAE with the aim of building an audience for contemporary art in the Gulf. And it's just incredible what he did. He must have made such an impact. For instance, he produced performance pieces in the desert outside Dubai, which must have, you know, must have really stood out. I mean, especially in the, in the conservative UAE. And and also there's also photographs of some of other other key events, such as 1984 event known as the One Day Exhibition, which was held in Sharjah Central Market, which they they believe is one of the first contemporary art shows ever held in the United Arab Emirates. So this is a really important show, really. You know, it's it's such significant documentation of Sharif's work and life, and it needed to be said. And and Sheikh Ahor, the curator, has done a fantastic job. Annie, what about you? Well, my vote goes to uh, the Julia Stoschek collection in Dusseldorf. Um, it's a video. She's been collecting video art for, well, for quite some time, but the collection's been open for 10 years. And for her for tenth for her 10th year anniversary, um, Ed Atkins, the video artist, has selected um, some of the works from the collection. But it's not so much that exhibition, which is fantastic. It's the way she displays video art. It's a masterclass. I've never seen anything quite like it. She's taken out all the dividing walls and exchange brick for glass so basically you can see these pairs of videos but you can also see reflections of not only those videos in the glass but other videos playing 
next door well it's completely soundproof but it's just it was just the most fantastic way of viewing a video art exhibition um, that I've never seen anything like it before and I'm going to plump for Rachel Whiteread at Tate Britain uh, with a caveat which I'll mention in a minute but it was a genuinely remarkable retrospective one of the great Tate shows I think in that she took the, what's called the 1979 extension which is that big group of modernist galleries up in the sort of top right hand corner of Tate Britain and she took away all the walls bar a few partitions where she could display smaller works like drawings or small sculptural works and so you get you really really got that feeling that that strange balance in her work between extreme intimacy of making and then really bold production in terms of really large works of art which um as she pointed out to me when I, I talked to her about Louise Bourgeois Louise Bourgeois was uh was in awe in a way of what Rachel had achieved because she you know she said such a little person that made such these grand works in a in a world which still even in the 90s was male dominated especially sculpture was male dominated and and she really made work which which was aggressive in its own way but also so powerfully intimate and incredibly moving and poetic and i think this show showed that off so well and so so powerfully now, the caveat is, when I visited the show, when there were quite a lot of members of the public in, it was work which should be incredibly silent and incredibly, um, as I say, poetic and lyrical. And unfortunately, the barriers that have been put in place mean that every second a beep is going off. And so this unbelievably beautiful show is punctuated by a sort of techno soundtrack, frankly. And, it, it, you know, this is this is such a you know, snobbish, pompous old art critics kind of comment. But, I, I, you know, there must be ways that we can stop the works being touched or stop people getting too near the works without having to resort to having these obtrusive beeps that, that interrupt one's viewing experience. <laughs> At the opening, I think they even thought it was a special sound installation. The beeps were so intrusive and excessive it brings to mind the fact I, I i also interviewed gavin turk this year and he said interestingly that his experience of working at the newport street gallery damien hearst gallery was the best artistic experience he'd had because he could show the works exactly as he wanted to that there was no conservator getting in the way of him being able to show us show a work without barriers so that people would encounter his work exactly as he intended and i think this is a problem unfortunately of showing uh, contemporary art in spaces which are very heavily populated where there are a lot of people. And when you have a lot of lenders, if you're an institution, you get very worried about their precious works getting damaged, whereas, of course, in Damien Hirst, all the works belong to him. Exactly. We've already discussed a lot. There's so much more that we want to get through, but this is all that we've got time for. Thank you all so much. And that's it for this week, and indeed for this year. You can read more about everything we've discussed online at theartnewspaper.com, where, if you're still stumped for Christmas presents, you can also buy a gift subscription to The Art Newspaper. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, and if you have a moment, post a rating or review. And you can also let us know what you think on Twitter or Facebook at The Art Newspaper, and follow us on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. We're taking a break over the holiday period and into the new year, so from all of us at The Art Newspaper, happy holidays and best wishes for 2018. Thanks for listening.